0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, from hacking to hacked, the hacking team gets owned and what gets leaked is the best part. We'll share the details, plus a new open SSL vulnerability hits the web, Apple tweaks their two-factor authentication, a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 222 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on July 9th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. But our live stream, let me tell you about that, it's brought to you by Scale Engine. Go over to scaleengine.com, you've got to check that out. It powers all of our video streaming and downloads. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, I'm really really kind of excited about this week. Uh, The news has been, I don't know a better way to put this, it sounds a little weird, but it's been thick for the TechNet program. Uh, like a lot of stuff in the TechNet program's wheelhouse. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, I, one of the things is, one of the behind the scenes notes about this show. Um, I think, yeah, since the very first episode we've used Google Docs to um, put together the show notes. And uh, this week, it was one of the weeks where I was like, this is why it's really nice to have real time, because I was filling out some information in there, and I was able to see, oh, Alan's going to reorganize it in this way. And I was able to just kind of pick up your flow of how you were organizing it and start putting the links in there. And when you have really big stories like this, it's pretty cool to have real time collaboration. And so it was neat to kind of use those. It's just... It's interesting how those back-end tools like that, Alan, are really critical as stories are just developing super, super fast. And uh, th- I touched on this story in Tech Talk today earlier this week, but with a caveat I said, you know we're going to talk about it more in TechSnap. So Alan, I won't delay any more. What is our okay. top story this week on the TechSnap program?
1: So our top story is the Italian intrusion software vendor, Hacking Team, has had a data breach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hacking Team is basically uh, a vendor that sells spyware to governments. <laughs> and uh, other approved companies and I so I love on. them already. Yeah, so they, they make spyware and stuff for uh, key loggers and stuff like that and sell it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, people on the internet do not like that so much. And one of them managed to break into Hacking Team and apparently uh, stole 400 gigabytes worth of data Ooh. and uh, put it up in a torrent.
0: Yeah, this will uh, happen so over the weekend, I think.
1: Yeah, on uh, Sunday evening, an unnamed attacker posted a torrent with 400 gigabytes of data purporting to have been taken from the hacking team's network. Uh, among the more uh, potentially damaging documents that were made public were invoices showing the hacking team sold this intrusion software to governments uh, with the pressure of regimes like Sudan, Ethiopia, and Egypt, uh, but also sold to many other countries. Uh, mm-hmm. The researchers at Trend Micro were able to analyze the leaked data and found uh, several exploits that the hacking team ha- had, mm. it's not clear whether they wrote them or found them or whatever, mm-hmm. but and also found some zero days for Adobe Flash Player. Surprise, surprise. So this suggests that uh, hacking team had, had bought or found um, zero day exploits and were sitting on them yeah. and using them uh, to, in order to exploit people's computers right. uh, to install their spyware. Uh, A README document found alongside one of the proof of concept codes for the Flash Flare Zero Day describes the vulnerability as, quote, the most beautiful flash bug of the last four years since CVE 2010 2161. Uh, And then uh, two days ago, uh, Adobe released a patch for the Zero Day uh, Mm. because it's been found being used in the wild. So it's not clear, but it seems that they uh, might have either either a hacking team was using it, or somebody else also found it, uh, or a hacking team sold it to somebody who was using it. Yeah, It's not clear exactly what order this stuff was happening in. It it says here in their security
0: bulletin, Adobe is aware of reports that an exploit targeting its vulnerability has been published publicly. Now, that verbiage right there sounds like they knew about it. Adobe is aware of reports that an exploit targeting its vulnerability has been published publicly, as in something that wasn't before public is now public. does not that what that sounds like to you?
1: Uh, no, that's
0: just the standard
1: way they, they write okay. their reports. They right. just say, uh, we had to release an update because every, there was a zero day that was disclosed publicly. And so, yeah, you know, the, the other verbiage they have is we were informed and you know, here's the fix. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they always say, that we heard reports, rumors. It's like nobody told us directly. We just kind of found out to the grapevine. Yeah, I mean, line. it's not a big and deal. So it's just pe- people
0: are talking about it. It's not like a big deal. So we're just going to go <laughs> and do this.
1: Yeah. Um, but so it's not really clear if if it was somebody else that was using it in the wild, then if Hacking Team had just disclosed it to Adobe, we could have had a fix and it wouldn't have been used as a zero day. Right. Uh, or it was Hacking Team that sold this to the people that were using it, or it was Hacking Team that was using it, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they also say, uh, in late June, uh, Trend Micro learned of a user in Korea uh, where there was an attempt uh, to use uh, various exploits on them, including CVE 2014-0497, uh, flash vulnerability discovered last year, uh-huh. uh, and they also found that in the Hacking Team trove. Ah. Uh, the exploit uh, was used to download a Trojan on the target's computer, which then proceeded to download several other malicious payloads and create malicious processes. <laughs> in addition to the Flash Player exploit, Trimocco also spotted an exploit for a Windows kernel zero-day vulnerability in the hacking
0: team leak. Oh. So expect to see a Windows update coming soon to fix that vulnerability. I've also been reading something about a potential exploit in Android 4.3 uh, oh. that is in the... Uh, but I, I, I did some digging around, and it doesn't look like maybe it's totally uh, unknown, but it looks like it still may not be patched. So right, it's in the treasure trove as well.
1: What with with
0: Android, anything uh, could be unpatched. You know, this the one thing, Alan. This does I think the big thing this does for you and I in this show is it changes the discussion about these companies who are hoarding these exploits and are doing this mm-hmm. uh, cyber hacking. Uh, I don't know if uh, uh, do you like they have a commercial. The hacking team has a commercial that you can watch. That's uh, it's pretty pathetic. Like, it starts Mm -hmm. out with the movie guy's voice, in a world, right? Not kidding you. And then, like, it starts with a hacker, like, you can just see his head, like the top of his his hoodie, because he's wearing a hoodie, right? And he slowly, through the whole trailer, emerges up in the video frame as they talk about the world of hackers, and the cyber dimension, and the threat vectors, right? And this is their commercial. This is who they're selling to. They're selling to states and governments. And so, one of the things that I believe this attack is going to do is it changes our conversation now about these types of companies? A lot of times, in in the in the context of TechSnap, we've talked about how them hoarding these zero days and selling them is artificially raising the cost. It is incentivizing uh, attackers and black hats to uh, sell exploits instead of working with the companies and their programs. That's been the main context of how we've talked about these companies. Now we're going to have to talk about these companies in the context of what happens when their treasure trove gets leaked. What happens when they get attacked because they're a target now and they've got all this S that they've collected on Adobe or or Microsoft Windows or uh, Android 4.3. or iOS even, and so these are all really, really sensitive things that a lot of these different companies are going to have, which is going to make them have a ginormic, tar- a ginormous target on their back. And so now, not only, not only are they sort of complicit in a cyber arms race where they're continually raising the cost of these zero-day exploits and selling them to state governments and not helping the public interest by not disclosing these vulnerabilities to the companies and to the people, but now also they can put the people in these companies at great risk when all of this data and information is leaked onto the internet because they get breached, which inevitably, because they're such great targets, big huge targets, they're going to get breached. This changes the conversation in my opinion.
1: Well, and it also kind of raises the questions, you know, we saw... Uh, the U.S. government trying to push back against this or whatever with those Wastner agreement things. And, you know, I can't even download a copy of Metasploit now without, right. like, giving my name yeah. to the government or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the government suppliers of exploits can do whatever they want.
0: Yeah. Where does this uh, – this this is getting a little out of – this is getting a little out of hand.
1: Yeah, uh, and so it kind of raises the question is, shouldn't we just pass a law like, if you have a zero day and you don't report it, then the possession of that is illegal. Yeah. Make you know, uh, it's like make it it, illegal to possess zero days. It's like if you find a zero day, report it to the vendor right away, otherwise I wonder it's I don't a
0: I don't know the answer to this. <clears throat> Maybe somebody in the audience does. Is there a parallel like in the automotive industry or in the airline industry where like if I am a if I'm an airline technician or I'm an airline uh, pilot, or maybe I'm just... If I know about a fatal flaw in a Boeing 777 or in a Ford F-150 that could cause the death of tons and tons and tons of tons of people, like or millions of people, or whatever, Like, if I know about that, is there a law that says I'm compelled to disclose that? If you work for GM and you cover it up, then that's illegal. Sure, yeah, but like, if I'm in the or public it, and I discover a flaw, let's say in the Ford F-150 braking system that could, be affect, could right. affect the last five years of models and I don't disclose it, am I breaking the law? I don't think you
1: specifically are. But if, if Ford knows about it and doesn't do something, right. then they're in trouble. Yeah. But as you as somebody who's basically a third party in this transaction, right, you're not the person uh, whose vehicle's failing or the person who's uh, the, uh, the manufacturer. But if you tell Ford and then they don't do anything about it, then Ford's in trouble. But if you there's, I don't think there's anything that compels you to tell Ford.
0: Okay, yeah, all right, well. I was just fun. yeah. I was wondering if we could draw it. I think there. In,
1: in in regular cases it'd be like, well, as the uh, a, a consumer of Ford F one fifty, you know, you're not really expected to find that kind of a flaw, or you know, have the technical competence to figure out what the root cause of it is, right? Or whatever. Yeah. But you know, if you take it in, then and your mechanic finds it, whatever, they're expected to tell Ford, and then it's Ford's problem. But. So, yeah, I can see how it's a little hard to draw the parallel. But, of course, the chat room pointed out the GM ignition case, right, where if you have to of a keychain, your car could shut off and the brakes won't work mm-hmm. while you're on the highway or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. But, yeah, so, you know, if, if we have all these laws about, you know, oh, cyber threats are, are weapons and we can't allow weapons trafficking, then how come that's not being applied in cases of these vendors that are doing business with the government, Right. So you know, having zero days is bad unless you're selling them to the government. Then it's fine. Yeah. You know, especially are. when you're selling them to go- governments that aren't necessarily friendly to the U.S. as well, right? <laughs>
0: oh, Al, it's making my head spin. Not, not
1: that I want the, the litmus test to be is your government friendly to the U.S. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> yeah, to right. get my point. Yes. Wow. Okay. But it really and- does raise the question: How did hacking team get these zero days? Did they find them themselves and not report them? Did they? Do that with wow. the intent of selling them to people? Or did they discover them being used by others and just right. keep it? I mean, why wouldn't well, they consider you know, these?
0: I mean, it seems like to me it's a competitive advantage to sit on these. These are your competitive yes. advantage.
1: It's like, yes, our malware can actually get installed on people's computers
0: because we can do a drive-by flash infection. Yeah. And and then they can point to this, look at this situation here in, in Korea. And, yeah. Oh, Bad, it's so know, creepy. We, we, can,
1: we can infect the computers of people that are completely patched up and slightly paranoid or whatever.
0: Yeah. That's, that is the genuine advantage of the zero day. Have somebody that has all their patches up to date? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, Alan, uh, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no,
1: but there are a ton of links at the bottom of our show notes uh, because yeah. this story's got little bits of it all over the place and different people's takes on it and, uh, you know, talking uh, different kind of uh, angles on the story. Yeah. And,
0: you know... Yeah. Uh, Actually, it's a. we did a pretty good condensed version of a pretty big story. Like, we went boom, boom, boom through. I okay, gave you the highlights of that's really the condensed version of what is turning out to be a pretty embarrassing story. Uh, all right. Well, I'll tell you about something that has saved me a lot of face, and that's our first sponsor this week. That's Ting. Go to com. Ting is mobile that makes sense. I've been using them for over two years, and here's what I love about Ting. You only pay for what you use. No crazy contracts that you might – you know, like – Let's like imagine if you brought somebody like from a different time period and, and brought them to 2015 and you told them <clears throat> Well, you might use 500 minutes so you better buy the 800-minute plan because that's the only thing they offer, right? They have 300 minutes 800 minutes and like 2,000 minutes So you better buy the 800 minutes you might use two gigs so you can't get the two gig plan because then you get charged an overage. So you better buy the four gig plan. And I know you don't plan to text message a lot because you got like hangouts and you got WhatsApp and you got your, your telegrams. Sure. But you might get a few. So you better at least get the 300, te- the 300 messages uh, package because that's as low as they go. It's 300 messages, right? And so you're, you're, at the end of the day, you're like, well, okay. I'm paying $80, $90 a month after taxes are in. And I'm, I'm using what? 100 minutes? Three, four, five text messages? One, two gigabytes of data. This is where Ting is different. See, Ting is a flat $6 for the line. And then it's just your usage on top of that. Ting takes your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. Whatever usage you use, they add that all up. That's what you pay. There's some taxes depending on your state. Uh, but that's it. And, and so for me, I've got three line, four lines. I've got four lines now on Ting. I'm so used to saying three, but I, it blows my mind. because, <clears throat> So, I add a fourth line. But because my usage shifts from the Nexus 5 to the S6... It's not like my bill goes up a whole bunch. It just goes up $6. Because my, my usage patterns are identical. And, and so now I have the Nexus 5, primarily on Wi-Fi, because it's running Ubuntu Touch right now. Uh, and it's, it's a great test device. And I like three days ago, I'm like, ah, back to Android. On my Nexus 5, right? And, and this is, this is it, it sounds so cavalier. It sounds almost excessive. But uh, yeah, it would if if like if you were paying eighty, ninety, hundred and twenty five dollars a month for that device for that phone, to just to just la- la- just lazily say oh, I'm going to put Ubuntu on here and then I'm going to put Android on here, yeah that that would be excessive. But see, I'm I'm paying six dollars, and in fact, if if you know what, if I go forth with an OS that I don't even want to bother getting on on the cellular for a little while, I can go into my Ting dashboard and I can just turn the line off. I don't lose the number, I don't like lose the account, I'm, but I'm not going to pay right because I'm Ting. See, Ting's system works bit by because they don't necessarily need to have you use up a bunch of minutes to make, to make money. That's what's so brilliant. They are a whole reseller of the networks that they write on top of. So they have agreements there that they work with there, and so they're able to focus more on aspects of the platform to make it a better customer experience. That's why they're able to have no-hold customer service. That's why they're able to tell you how to save data on your plans. That's why they're able to sell you a device for as low as $33 with no contract, No contract, and it's unlocked for $33. That's a feature phone right there. That's really cool. This is brand new. They just added it today. Look at that. And this is on the GSM network. So this is another nice thing about Ting, is they have GSM and CDMA, which you can pick or choose from. My Nexus 5 is actually capable of doing both. I have to just do a little reconfigging, and I can switch between CDMA and GSM. I've pretty much left it on the GSM network since Ting rolled it out. But if I go somewhere where they have better CDMA, like for a fest or something, why not? Why not switch over to CDMA? I can. And I love this about Ting. So I've got four devices now. My cost doesn't go up in order to do this. I'm able to experiment with my older devices. I get a lot more value out of it. There's no contract. And if you're stuck in a contract with your existing monopoly, well, then they're going to give you an early termination relief program. They have more information about that at Ting. But go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. If you have any other additional questions or you just want to speak to a human being, call them at one eight five five 855 ting ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. That's in East Coast time. That's where Alan lives. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Shout out to Alan. And then uh, yes. they'll answer your questions because they're humans. And they're like, oh, you have a question. Well, let me tell you. And they'll answer it. So go over there, techsnap.ting.com. You're going to get a $25 discount off your first device. So, for example, if you just need a quick calling phone, you're gonna get, you can get this LG 450 for $33 with no contract and it's unlocked. Now, of course, they got everything, right? Ting is, they're, they're they got all these devices, uh, the OnePlus, Apple iPhone 6, the S6, which is hot, the LG G4, which is, I think, the one of the best phones that doesn't get enough acknowledgement, and to be honest with you, if you're thinking about getting the Moto X2, maybe you should consider getting the LG G4. Yeah, they got the Moto X2 as well. The LG... Nexus 6. Yeah, the Nexus 6 is badass. They got the Nexus 6 on here, right here, $499. That's unlocked. You own it. Just like getting it from the Play Store, but boom, ready to go with Ting. You can also just get a SIM card. There's so many options. I would really like you to check it out. Plus, every plan includes hotspot and tethering because it's just your usage. You don't have to have, like, a special share plan or anything like that. I know. It's nuts. TechSnap.ting.com. Go check them out. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And remember, they got a savings calculator. You can try it out, put your existing usage in there, and see how much Ting would save you. TechSnap.ting.com. I'm two years in now, and I'm well over $2,000. $2,000. I keep trying to bring that up to Ange, and I'm like, hey, Ange, shouldn't I get a laptop for that or something? And (laughs) Ange tells me to shut up and enjoy my savings. I don't understand what she means, though. Yeah. Uh, hey, Alan, our next story is kind of mobile-related. Well, before we get into that late-breaking news from the chat room oh. on the previous
1: story, Bring it. people have uh, dug up doc If you look in the show notes at the last item, mm-hmm. uh, people going through the 400 gigabytes of stuff have found invoices of a uh, hacking team paying a Russian hacker uh, for his Flash Zero Day exploits. There we go. Now, these aren't the ones in question. These are from like 20, or 2013, uh, but they the bottom uh right hand picture is an invoice uh where showing them paying the attacker um thirty nine thousand u s dollars or whatever <laughs> uh and there's another one with an email where it's like here's an exploit that'll be seventy five thousand dollars paid in three monthly installments please
0: hmm. well there's how it works that's how it works right there, just yep. as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen good find huh? good find thank you chat room for uh, well, the the update yes exactly you know what. Why not join us live, jblive.tv. We do this show live on Thursdays at 2 p.m. Wait, do we do this at 1 p.m. Pacific? 1 p.m. Pacific. Which, Alan, what is that in your... uh... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. There you go. Or go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and you can join us live and hang out in our chat room. All right, Alan, so our next story has a mobile flair to it. In fact, it's about Apple's upcoming iOS 9, correct?
1: Yes. Uh, So we'll get to the iOS 9 part in a minute. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, we have, if you remember, uh, years ago now, uh, where a hacker used social engineering against Apple support to take over the Apple ID of Matt Honan, a uh, reporter for Wired.com. Because he had a three-letter Twitter username, right? At M-A-T.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, yes, yes, you know, yeah, yeah. that's
1: that's something people like, having a short Twitter handle. Uh, so the uh, attacker guy decided he was going to get that Twitter handle. And to do that, uh, he basically reset uh, use social engineering to reset Matt's Apple support um, Apple ID stuff so he could get into his Apple email address so when he sent the password reset from Twitter he could get it. But he ended up basically locking Matt out of his Apple ID account, remotely erasing his iPhone and iPad and destroying all his pictures and stuff and and really uh, <laughs> screwing up Matt's life quite a bit. Uh, and they we covered for that extensively yeah. uh, quite a while ago. Yeah, But um, since then you know, when that happened, a lot of people went out and rushed out to uh, enable Apple's two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. so this wouldn't happen to them. Right, uh, you know, and which uh, we
0: often recommend. To, we always recommend two-factor yeah. authentication.
1: Right. So a uh, little bit more background. So the hacker was able to remotely erase uh, Honan's iPhone and iPad and destroy all of his stuff, I and mean, he was able to do this because he basically called up Apple support. And pretended to be Matt, and he's like, oh, I've lost my password, and oh, I don't have access to that email address or whatever, and basically fudges his way through all the regular security questions and stuff. Mm. Uh, I think he needed the last four digits of the credit card, but he had hacked Matt's Amazon account, and if you look at a previous order or whatever, they give you the last four digits of the credit card so you know which credit card you spent the money on or whatever. Yeah. and It seems like security verification can't be the same thing we use for, you know, the, it's the part that's printed on invoices and yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, here's here's the invoice I bought on something, and it shows like the first and last four numbers of the credit card number or just the last four numbers. But when we use that same last four numbers as the um, way to che- uh, ide- check your identity, it's not the best way to do it. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, using a bunch of information you got off the internet and stuff, you know, the guy's a reporter and posts a lot about himself. Uh, but with all the information he got, he was able to either guess the right answers to the security questions or Bluff his way through by just acting like he didn't
0: remember and stuff, right? Because right? and you, and basically you by to attack
1: a human at Apple, not
0: a computer. By leveraging information that one company exposed, that maybe a different company exposed. In this case, Amazon and Apple, and then and then just socially engineering the humans to uh, mm-hmm. to take advantage of that. He was able to get access, and then because yeah. once you get access, you have the options of like remotely wiping the MacBook and the iPhone and all of that. Once you're in, I mean, you wow, you're in.
1: Yeah. Uh, so in the aftermath of that, Apple promised to increase training on its support operators and to improve security. Uh, so as part of that, you know, we've, everybody rushed out and enabled two-factor authentication. So when you do that, what Apple does is when you enable two-factor, they issue you a recovery key, uh, which is basically a text string on a page and they're like, print this out and store it somewhere safe. And if you ever lose your password, then uh, you'll need this to reset it, right? Um, However, if you lose that, you're kind of in trouble. <laughs> uh, because Apple's gone through and tightened up security and uh, retrained all their operators, they won't uh, reset your password. There's nothing you can do. If you lose that recovery key, you're totally boned.
0: Now, is this necessary in order for them to deny government decryption requests, you think?
1: Um, not necessarily for that, but it's the only way to make sure that I can't pretend to be some celebrity and take over their phone.
0: But it's also the only way for Apple to be able to say, no matter what you ask us to do, we cannot decrypt this user's phone.
1: Well, I don't know if your encryption key is stored in your Apple ID or anything like that. I don't know if those two things are related or not, Mm. but it could be. Um, And then, so, uh, the next story, you're still showing the wrong page, but it's fine. Oh, sorry. Um, The next story... uh, was about a journalist who lost his recovery key because he set it up Ah. after the Matt Honan thing in a hurry. And then since then he's moved and he's like, I have no idea where this little piece of paper went. I don't remember if I even actually got around to storing it in a safe place. I seem to remember I took a picture of, I printed it out and took a picture of it with my phone. So I would have, you know, the picture (laughs) and the printout. But I'm locked out of my phone now. So I can't even see if I have the picture up. Can't find
0: that stupid paper. It's dead tree. I don't know where that is.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Dead trees don't work for me either. No. Yeah. Uh, not not for more than he, about I I can keep papers around me for a little while but as soon as I clean up it's gone. It's gone. Yep.
1: Uh so he talked about his attempts to go through Apple support and even like, you know, begging through Apple PR and and being a uh, a reporter that actually knows people at Apple and everything and he still
0: He says, Hello, "I'm Owen Williams, him. can you please help me?"
1: <laughs> not quite, but uh, you know, everybody at Apple's like, "Yes, yeah, sorry. The the policy is if you don't have that recovery token, make a new Apple ID, and sorry that your app purchases and, and movie and music purchases for the last seven years are gone. Not yeah, our but, problem. But, but, you lost
0: the key. Whew, I mean, that's pretty crazy now because uh, things like your iPhoto library and whatnot are stored up in that same account and all that stuff.
1: Well, you should have done a better job protecting your
0: recovery key. I guess have another backup, <laughs> huh? Right. Yeah. It's kind of, this is, this is the trade-off.
1: Mm-hmm. If you want absolute security, there's the risk that if you don't do your start part of it, that it's gone forever, right? That's, that's how Tarsnap works for online backups, right? Here's your encryption key. You're the only one that have it. If you lose it, you're boned. Your backups are completely inaccessible I, to I don't,
0: anyone ever. I don't dispute that this is probably, in terms of just security, the best the best route to take. It just seems sort of anti-customer <laughs> service in a way. because. Right. I guess it's it is pro customer service in the sense that you are giving them the best protection possible. And again, this is only if you opt into two factor authentication. Okay, right. You All can right. Still
1: call support Or whatever. If you, if you just have regular passwords. Okay, or whatever. and then
0: you know what? That's fair enough because you could make some. It's probably safe to make some rough assumptions about users that are intentionally opting into two factor authentication. Because yeah. to opt in, well, you got to go into settings. You got to know what the hell that is. You got to walk through the setup. Mm-hmm. And I think they even have like a vetting, some sort of ridiculous like. Process where they make you wait and all kinds of stupid stuff. So, I guess. And, it's- you know,
1: if, if you're a celebrity and you don't want to be the next uh, victim of the fappening or whatever, you can definitely see where you'd want it to be. No matter what somebody on the phone says, claim to be me or my agent or whatever, don't k- reset my account. Yeah. I'd rather lose the account than let someone else get access to it.
0: Hmm. That's a good point.
1: But you have to, you know, consider the, the consequences of that. Right. So, uh, as you kind of alluded to. However, because Apple is so customer service focused, they've decided to abandon that style of security and instead opt for something where it's easier to weasel out of it. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. So at the uh, Worldwide Developer Conference uh, a couple weeks ago, or whenever that was, uh, Apple said it would build a more integrated and comprehensive two-factor system for its next OS and iOS release. Mm. Uh, Specifically, currently the way two-factor is done is kind of Different in a couple of different of the apps. Like if you're, and I, I don't I don't use any Apple products, so I don't actually know. But apparently, it's actually kind of a fragmented experience, depending whether like if you're logging to the website or your phone or yeah. an app or. And like some of their
0: some of their apps, like Messages, doesn't support two-factor authentication, so you have to generate okay. one-time passwords every time you do it. And how you do that's not very clear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they're promising a new, more integrated system. Uh, they say among other changes, the recovery key option. Uh, that's tripped up users in the past and led to, in some cases, to users having to abandon their Apple ID permanently uh, has been removed, and Apple spokesman confirmed. It says, with the new system, Apple customer support will work through a detailed recovery process with users who lose access to their trusted devices and phone numbers. Uh, and they posted the full details of how the new system will work on the uh, developer.apple.com site.
0: Okay, so there's more info there if people want to read up on that on Apple's site. <laughs> the now, you know, doc- we, documentation.
1: we can definitely see how... Having it so strict is kind of a problem. But at the same time that as soon as it's a Apple support person whose job it is is to help you or help the person on the phone mm-hmm. not necessarily guarantee the security of your account. Right. That opens up the possibility of problems. And so really it's a two-factor problem that needs to be solved for everybody. It's not specific to Apple. Right? How do we deal with lost two-factor authentication? Okay? It's like I enable two-factor because I need my account to be secure, but there needs to be a route as well, right? To regain control of my account. And it's like, uh, in the the reporter who lost his Apple ID, it's like, well, you know, I offered to send them like faxes of my government ID and stuff. It's like, well, if they didn't have an original of your government ID from before that they knew was from the person who created the account, yeah. then what are they exactly comparing it to? And, you know, how do they know it's not forged? And how do they know that, you know, I didn't just steal a copy of your... ID, right? You know, it's entirely possible to social engineer someone into sending them a copy of their, you know, so I can social engineer somebody to send me a copy of their ID so I can then forward that copy to Apple to pretend to be them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So, it, you know, that's not a guaranteed way to protect anything either, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a difficult problem. Mr. Jude, any other thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I, know what the answer is, but it seems like listening to security is not a great answer, but I can understand that you know, losing your Apple ID is kind of problematic for people.
0: Yeah, I just, I look at it now and I think if anybody I feel is clever enough to understand how to operate two-factor, like I'll, I'll even, like family members, I'll be willing to walk them through setting it up, but I just, to me, two-factor is becoming such an important extra component of anything... I think if you have any kind of account that can have your photos, your notes, your email, it needs to offer two-factor. I think it starts to, need to become a baseline. How the different vendors implement it, I think that's where we can quibble, but I think we should all start to agree that two-factor is a baseline. I don't know how sure, Apple's implementation will
1: shake out, though. What we need is uh, a way to handle a password reset with two-factor, right? right. So if I have two-factor authentication and my phone gets destroyed, how do I mm-hmm. authorize my new phone? Right. Are you, are That's screwed? not really a, a question. And if it involves just, oh, there's some little way to quibble around the two factor, then it's like, well, the problem there is that somebody else could do that. Right? Yeah. The attacker could pretend that my phone was broken and get his phone authorized. Oh, yeah. And that would defeat the whole point. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we don't really have a great way of, of solving that problem with two factor. No.
0: Uh, All right, Mr. G, let's take a pause right here. Uh, I'll talk about something that does solve problems, and that's IX Systems. You know, IX Systems is building storage and servers driven by open source. And I think a lot of you out there are probably building more and more solutions driven by open source. Wherever it fits in your enterprise, whatever you might need, IX Systems has a rig capable of providing the solutions. From the low-end, like, small business-like type operations where you got a few people up to the really high-end crazy stuff. Now, Alan... Like, speaking of high-end crazy stuff, in the production Mm -hmm. chat earlier today, you were teasing me about a new system that you're building right now from iX. Yes.
1: Yes. I've got my quote back from iX, and we're getting uh, a new uh, dual Xeon, so it'll have, I think, 32 cores, (laughs) 128 gigs of RAM, and uh, 36 6-terabyte helium
0: Enterprise SAS drives. Oh, now the helium. So what was so when you were discussing with IX, did the helium drives come up specifically in the conversation and, and uh, not originally that I was like, well I
1: need a lot of storage, so I need at least six terabyte drives. And they're like, well, the most reliable six terabyte drives are these helium ones. And I was like, Well, I, I noticed on HGST's site they have eight terabyte helium drives. How are those? And it's like, well, the price per gigabyte is actually more. for It's a premium to get those giant 8 terabyte drives. And we haven't used them enough to know exactly how reliable they are, so we recommend the 6 terabytes. But we will sell you the 8 terabytes if you insist. Yeah. And what did you decide to do? I went with six terabytes because I need this to be reliable, and yeah. it and turns know, out it's, it's enough space for what I'm doing.
0: And so. you know that they test. It. I mean, it's, it's a really white glove experience from IX Systems. They mm-hmm. test this stuff. They do burn-in testing before they ship it to you. Go to ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap. You can download their white paper that really explains all of this, and maybe even helps you grease the wheels up the chain in your company if you want to move over as hardware vendors. I've worked in IT for a long time, so has Alan. And uh, I wish, I, when I was still in IT, I wish I was an IX Systems customer because now that I've started my own business, I've become an IX Systems customer, and I, I would have absolutely absolutely. absolutely 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 advocated for ix systems to my clients back in the day now Alan's building out scale engine same thing ix systems
1: well I remember the very first ZFS server I bought. remember we I like showed off the parts Mm -hmm. in my apartment on the show way it was like 2012 yeah we've been doing this show a long time yeah we're getting old Um, (laughs) so yeah when I built that very first server I ordered a barebone Supermicro chassis because I liked Supermicro, and that's what IX System sells. Uh, but I ordered a barebone chassis from the li- local computer store, and then I bought all the parts individually and I had to put them together and wire it all up. And it turns out the uh, the disk controller I bought from Newegg or whatever, even though it claimed it supported FreeBSD on the box, it actually only supported FreeBSD 8, not 9. And oh. I wanted 9 for the newer version of uh, ZFS. Yeah. And I did some crazy hacks to get a driver kind of working, and then uh, it turns out there was a bug in that one, and it would basically just hang for like six hours, and then reset itself, and then work again. Oh, jeez. And just all kinds of weirdness, and it's like, ah, whereas it's like, if I had just known to call up IX, Mm -hmm. get the same server probably for less money, and... They would have built it all for me, done it all for me, could could have shipped it directly to the data center, and they would have made sure that I got the right disk controller in it and that it all would just work. Yep, yep.
0: Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and check them out. And a big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Man, speaking of uh, sysadmin problems, uh, our buddy from the Linux Action Show, Noah, telegrammed me today, and he's like, man, you know what I didn't need this week? These freaking OpenSSL updates for all of my clients that he's now running around (laughs) and installing. So, Alan, this next story is probably burning um, some time up for a lot of our sysadmin members in the audience. What's going on? It depends, actually.
1: Okay. Uh, So an OpenSSL vulnerability was revealed. Uh, You know, we heard earlier in the week that it was coming. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of built a lot of hype about it. Like, <laughs> it's critical. <laughs> and it's like, yes, it's critical, but turns out it doesn't actually affect that many things because it was a bug introduced in the last update a month ago. Ah. So if you haven't ups- uh, installed the uh, the update from a month ago, you're actually okay. <laughs> um, And uh, so, you know, it was all that hype for nothing. One uh, time where patching so, your ass didn't pay off. <laughs> because the the patch last month didn't, fix any critical security bugs, I don't think.
0: Oh, okay. So maybe, so maybe not uh, a lot of people jumped on it.
1: The the, the main update uh, on June 11th was to update the minimum Diffie-Hellman parameters from 5.12 to 7.68, uh, which actually broke send mail, old versions of SendMail and stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people haven't actually deployed that, I and mean, specifically... Uh, Most people are still using OpenSSL 1.0.0, and that wasn't affected because it didn't get that feature, Hmm. uh, the feature that was broken. So anyway, to the bug, uh, during certificate verification, OpenSSL will attempt to find an alternate certificate chain if the first attempt to build such a chain fails. An error in the implementation of that logic can mean that an attacker could cause certain chains of untrusted certificates to to be bypassed, such as the CA flag. Uh, enabling them to use a valid leaf certificate to act as a CA and issue invalid certificates.
0: Mm.
1: So specifically, an attacker could cause certain checks on untrusted certificates to fail in such a way that it wouldn't check whether that uh, certificate was a CA or not, and we just assume it was, and basically an attacker could make a certificate that's not trusted that would be treated as if it was a certificate authority and could sign, you know, I'm Gmail, I'm PayPal, I'm your bank. Yeah. And just take over everything.
0: Yeah. Uh, nice one.
1: <clears> yeah. So if you're using OpenSSL uh, 1.0.2 B or C or 1.0.1 1 or N, mm. you need to upgrade to uh, 102 D or 101 P. OK. Uh, however, if you're using older versions of OpenSSL like uh, 100 or 098, you're not affected. But reminder support for 100 and 098 will cease on December 31st of this year. Uh, But what this really goes to show is that OpenSSL needs to separate feature and bug releases Mm. and, you know, not kind of, oh, here's an important security update. But in it, we've shipped these two other new features that are going to be the source of the next vulnerability. Right? It's like, how about... New features only go into the head branch, yeah. the, you know, the bleeding edge version, and the one that we install in production only gets security fixes, nothing else. My
0: sense this is something that people have been pushing for for a little bit now?
1: Yeah, well, it's how are we not already having this? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Like, this is security stuff. Like, what is the point of a version number 1.0.1D, 1. 1. or uh, we're up to P already because of patches, but... If, if w- why would a uh, a patch that's just a letter on the end of the version number introduce a new feature? It that should never do that. Yeah, that doesn't right? make sense. Right, introducing new features should involve incrementing yeah. Yeah. a me- uh, at least a medium part of the version I, number. I wouldn't have even thought that they would do that. It's like, what is semantic versioning? Use it, come on. Exactly, yeah. <laughs>
0: hmm. Hmm.
1: I love it. You know, so why has a sane release model not been adopted for OpenSSL? Hmm. And why wasn't this caught before? Apparently, you know, the, the Adam Langley and uh, the other people at Boring SSL, like Google, found the problem.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Boy, it makes me want to get somebody uh, on But any- importantly,
1: uh, no version of FreeBSD was affected by this because they didn't have uh, only if you were running the developmental branch of 10 or the one of the betas that's just starting to come out. Uh, those would have been affected, but the, late, the beta doesn't, won't come out for a couple more days, I think, and it'll be patched by then. Uh, so only if you're running the head or stable branch of FreeBSD were you hitting that. If you're running any of the release versions, you were unaffected because they're all using versions that weren't affected.
0: Truly the most important element of the story. Yes. of course. I don't have to patch anything. Of course, yeah. that is underscore that everybody. That's the important part. Uh, information to everything else talking about in the show notes. Uh, Alan, can I just uh, interrupt for a brief moment and uh, tell you about our good friends over at DigitalOcean, who also rock free BSD, so you don't have to patch over there. DigitalOcean.com. Go check them out right now. Remember our promo code of absolute power and dominance. That's SnapOcean, one word, lowercase. SnapOcean. It'll give you a $10 credit over DigitalOcean. What the heck is DigitalOcean? Well, that's a very intelligent and astute question. Thank you for being willing and brave enough to ask me that. I'm glad to tell you. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server. Up on DigitalOcean's awesome rigs, powered by Linux and KVM, SSDs throughout their entire infrastructure, great connections in tier one data centers. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. Their wizard to get something set up is amazingly fast, especially if you've ever had any experience creating virtual machines. If, if, if you can check that box, has created a virtual machine before, then you're going to be blown away by the DigitalOcean experience. And here's what I love. At $5 a month, you'll get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because like I said, all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. A terabyte of transfer! And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. they got a brand new one in Germany. With their, speaking of SSDs, their fastest SSDs yet over there. But let's take take a moment. Bring it in. Let's get real, ladies and gentlemen, because what is awesome about DigitalOcean, and I think one of the reasons why I keep getting more droplets, one of the reasons that I, I look at them now is, boy, if I need a Linux server on demand, I'm going to DigitalOcean. Like if I want to deploy an application, I'm going to DigitalOcean. If I have something I need to test, I'm going to DigitalOcean. When Dylan wants a Minecraft server, I'm going to DigitalOcean. When I want to set set up an own cloud server to see if I can de Google find my life, I'm going to DigitalOcean. And I kept thinking, why is it always digital? Why? What is it $5 a month? Yeah, that's that's a bit of it. But also it's this interface. I, I don't mean to sound like one of these marketing guys, but it actually is like a legitimate term. It's friction free. I'm not gonna sit here and be like, oh, it's gonna take me 15 minutes to get this thing set up and then I'm going get get the OS installed, and then got to get this package. No. I go to digitalocean.com. In less than 55 seconds, I have a complete machine deployed, ready to go. I got one-click deployment applications. I can take snapshots. I can base it off templates. I can transfer them. I got DNS management all in one spot. And by the way, like, a lot of the applications I want, like, oh, I don't know, Ghost or GitLab or Ruby on Rails the entire LAMP stack, all one click. Up to date, you subscribe to the distribution's repo, so you're going to get the most recent patches as soon as you have the machine up and running. And DigitalOcean has local mirror set up for a lot of your more uh, popular repos, so you're going to get LAN speeds during your updates. so it's nuts. It blows your face off. And they have HTML5 console access built into the website, so that way you can watch from post all the way up to boot at the console. You can do it from your phone or your computer. You don't have to have Java. You don't have to have Flash. If you want to use GNOME Web to go over to the DigitalOcean web and watch your machine boot, you can do it. This is what's great. And then they have, on top of all of that, an API. And this API is freaking amazing. They've recently iterated about two months ago, and it is so straightforward that so many great community applications are being built around it. Apps integrating with your desktop, your phone, your, your existing management infrastructures like Puppet, scripting. It is really cool. And then you stop and think, $5 a month, wow. And then you look at the resources online, like the community tutorials, all of that great stuff. It really is a game changer. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean. Nobody's going to touch them. And by the way, huge congratulations. Huge congratulations to DigitalOcean. Just hit their Series B funding, starting a new chapter in the DigitalOcean story. They have a post up there. Up to date, over 500,000 developers have deployed more than 6 million droplets on DigitalOcean. Wow. And today they're happy to announce they've raised $83 million in funding. DigitalOcean's just getting started. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. And a big, big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys are rock. SNAPOcean is that promo code to support the show. And remember, you can apply it at any time. You don't have to do it at checkout. It's a $10 credit. And if you want to get started without a credit card, it's a great way to go. SNAPOcean. All right, so Alan, before we jump into the feedback segment, I'd like to give a plug. You guys, you guys sitting getting really close to episode 100. Today, mm-hmm. just a little bit ago, episode 97 of the BSD Now program came out, Big Network, Small Wall. What's this about?
1: Uh, it's about a new firewall project, uh, Small Wall, which is a fork of the discontinued model wall. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's for small embedded routers where you don't want to spend a lot on hardware. Uh, and as part of the interview, he showed off a bunch of devices he bought on eBay for $15 that can be great routers.
0: Cool. Very cool.
1: So in, instead of, you know, with PFSense, you're generally using, like, a PC. Yeah. Uh, with a small wall, you're using small embedded, like, things with, like geode processors and so on. So still x86, but little tiny embedded mm. things uh, that will sit on a shelf nicely rather than a whole PC.
0: Plus all the regular BSD news and feedback and other topics, uh, episode 97 Mm -hmm. of the BSD Net program. I will give a plug to episode 150 of the Unfiltered program, Encryption McCarthyism. We talked about how James Comey has been going around almost on a weekly campaign since the announcement of iOS uh, uh, 8 and uh, Google... uh, Lollipop against encryption. And there's uh, he he has something put together that is asking for tech companies, we're going to have more in the roundup of the TechSnet program, to mandate backdoors into all encryption. And then at the same time, uh, Senator Feinstein is working on uh, legislation that compels social media companies to report all terrorism-like activity on the social network to the government. Two different pieces of legislation, similar goals, both talked about in episode 150 because they're going to have big impacts on how technology is implemented and how communication companies are going to implement these kind of requirements. How
1: does the government define social media company?
0: Oh, that's a great question. That's one of the questions we raise in episode awesome. 150. Yep, check it out. Two great shows up BSD Now 97 and uh, Unfilter 150. And I guess I'll give one more plug. Since we're doing it, uh, Linux Unplugged hit episode 100 this week. And uh, to celebrate, I invited people over to the studio. We had a barbecue, and we had in-studio guests. And we talked about uh, the past ep- 100 episodes, the whole system D debate and debacle that developed during the, the run of the show. Uh, we talked about Mint, the new Mint release for Linux Mint. And uh, we've talked about... Uh, Um, all kinds of new uh, form factors for Linux as well in in, uh, Linux Unplugged 100, so some really great episodes this week. You guys can go start those downloads, because guess what? The TechSnap program about about halfway right now, somewhere around there, and so these downloads might finish up just in time, so you can get more Alan Jr. face, or at least more of my voice, because I'm filters, audio only. But Alan, with the news all done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or, like, none of you starting a thread in our server over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first email this week comes from Aaron. He says, hi. He's got a question about SSDs and your favorite, Alan, ZFS. I understand, or at least I think I understand. Now, Alan, you're going to have to help me here. He says, when to use A-shift equals 9 versus A-shift equals 12. What's he talking about there?
1: Okay, so, um, in... Uh, ZFS, you have the block size uh, and you want to align that with the block size on your physical disk so that, for example, if you have a 4K sector drive, if you use the default A shift equals 9, that's 512 byte blocks mm. and you can get right amplification, right? Because if you have a 4K block, if 4K is the smallest block that your hard drive can manage, if you want to change only 512K of it, you have to read the whole 4K, modify you know, the middle 512K and then write the whole thing back. Yeah. Whereas if you tell ZFS, hey, the smallest block is 4K, then it can do that, all okay. of its operations in whole 4K. So, so the, the, re- the number, the A shift equals 9 comes because if you shift by 9 places, uh, 2 to the power of 9 is 512. Okay. Whereas 2 to the power of 12 is 4096, or 4K. Or, as he points out, uh, 2 to the power of 13 is 8192, uh, which is 8K.
0: Yes. So is that what he's supposed, so this is, he says, apparently some SSDs use 8K blocks and require A-Shift 13. I realize that it's almost always advantageous to use A-Shift 12 instead of A-Shift 9, except in some very specific scenarios. However, how do I know when to use A-Shift 13 instead of A-Shift 12? I'm still looking to buy a FreeNAS Mini, or should I wait for the version 4 and pull the trigger now? What do you guys think? Thanks for the great show. Um, I'm not sure
1: exactly about the SSDs. Um, Using A-Shift equals 13, obviously seems like it would make the most sense, although because of the way the um, the Uber block handles the number of, uh, or the the way the ZFS label handles the slots for the Uber block, Mm -hmm. with A-shift equals 9, you get 128 blocks. Uh, You get the last 128 transactions you can back out. Uh, When you go to A-shift 12, then you only get 32, because it's only... Uh, 128 kilobytes divided by the sector size if you go to uh, A shift equals 13 all of a sudden now you can only go back 16 uber blocks which is can be a rather short amount of time although it should be fine um, there, there's a chance that might cause a complication so I don't know exactly but it seems like if you're really needing the performance out of your SSD it might be something you need to do
0: hmm okay Thank you.
1: This this is the type of question you would have to ask IX when you buy the server. Yeah, exactly. Uh, about <laughs> uh, the Freenas Mini, um, well, really, if you need it now, get it now. That's the thing um, about storage,
0: right? That is definitely the thing about yeah. storage.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the hardware's pretty much. There's not much more modern hardware or anything. Like if you're getting the one with the server-grade Atom with the ECC RAM, I'm not sure what else you want. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you want something beefier, then get a full server from them and. You know, they can build that as yeah, but for NAS, uh, on, you know, <laughs> as bleeding edge hardware as you want. Yeah, I
0: think it's it's plenty. Uh, Mystery, yeah,
1: the FreeNAS Mini has everything you're going to need. Uh, yeah. It, other than the fact that because of the form factor, it can only take so many drives. If you need more drives, get
0: a bigger server. Uh, Mystery X writes in with our next question uh, about storing salty password hashes. He says, "How do you store the unique salts for your password hashes?"
1: Well, if you're using the system correctly, uh, it's built into the hash. Uh, so if you look at uh, the uh, proper like, SHA-256 uh, crypt hash, yeah. you'll see it actually looks, let me get one here and I'll drop it in the chat room. Okay. Uh, but when you use modular crypt, what you actually get is, let me just, uh, there, uh, what it, the string actually consists of a dollar sign, which indicates the start, and then a number. One is MD5, two is Blowfish, uh, three and four are reserved for other stuff. One of them is even like Windows NT compatibility. Anyway, but five is SHA-256 crypt, and six is SHA-512 crypt. Then uh, you have the salt, which you can see there is the 4x, F, F5, blah, 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 up to the next dollar sign. And then everything after that last dollar sign is... The actual hash. So uh, when you calculate a SHA five twelve, it's actually binary, and then oftentimes we'll uh, we'll uh, string that down into base sixty four or or into hexadecimal or base sixty four. So um, the advantage with base sixty four is you get a slightly shorter string. So that's why it looks different than what you normally expect when you do a, a SHA five twelve and you get a um, uh, hexadecimal string where the, the it 's all lowercase or all uppercase, mm. but you know it only has zero through nine and a through f whereas mine you can see is case sensitive and has uh, sixty four different characters right all uppercase and lowercase numbers and a couple of symbols and then you can see kso five twelve posted uh, his in the chat room mm-hmm. there 's also an optional field uh, before the hash, so you see his is dollar sign six dollar sign rounds equals forty thousand so he 's turned up the uh, the security on his to a higher level and then another dollar sign then the salt then another dollar sign then the hash
0: yeah huh you know and right, so that, that is pretty how silly. you store the information that's like actually that. pretty clear when you break it down like that
1: yeah and you know this is a system that's been around for a long time that's how they did it with MD5 except for with MD5 right there was no optional yeah. rounds problem and that's why we had to stop using it because it had a fixed number of rounds that wasn't big enough whereas with Blowfish uh, and um the SHA-256 and 512 crypt, uh, we have the number of rounds. And that's also the thing that makes a difference, right? Uh, you don't want to be building this yourself. There's the crypt function calls built into like all posix operating systems. And like every programming language is supported already, or there's a nice library that does. You don't want to be building this yourself. Because it's not the same thing to just take you know the SHA-256 of or the SHA-512 of the salt concatenated with the password, because that's one round. Whereas you can see KSO's password there has 40,000 rounds. And it's not just doing it on itself every time. It's, it's pulling different pieces and chunks and remixing them together in a way that makes it a lot more work. Uh, and that's the whole point mm. of using a salted hash, is that brute forcing it is a lot of work. And the point of the salt is that you know, when you get a password file that has 100 users in it, each one will have a different completely random salt. And so, on top of everything, it basically means that the passwords they have to try get that many characters longer and are that much more random. Hmm. Cool.
0: Thank so,
1: you. So, you know, it basically automatically adds uppercase, lowercase numbers and symbols into everybody's password, making it that much harder to brute force. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It does make them harder to guess if your password is password
0: one. <laughs> All right, you ready for uh, Petrie's email the next uh, next yes. week? Uh So he has a question uh, that's more like, uh, you know, Sort of like a, a format, like a meta question. He says, I wish TechSnap or some other show would talk more about why there are still and where there are still some very weird, expensive closed-source operating systems for super serious use, like HPUX and Solaris. Sounds like HPUX is used for something like running radar stations and surveillance camera networks while looking like Linux or FreeBSD. Who knows? Maybe HP-UX is secretly 90% of FreeBSD. What? No. Even if it's just 90% Linux, would it get revealed? He wants to know. Is there maybe a lot more out there than we talked about? Maybe it's Legacy or something else. Maybe it's because it was so 20 well, Yeah, years HPUX
1: ago. is very old, um, but it's based on original Unix, so it does share some history with BSD, but probably not that much anymore. Uh, Solaris shares more history, and uh, if you watch BSD now from this week, uh, you'll see that Solaris is actually importing more stuff from OpenBSD, including uh, the PF firewall to replace their old <laughs> firewall that hasn't been updated in a long time, uh, and uh, their new crypto system and some stuff, I, mostly because it uh, depends on that for pf but uh
0: you know alan in my experience too you find it in a lot of interesting places like uh we used a system 390 uh mainframe at a bank i worked at the printers that printed the the uh, people's statements that got mailed out to your homes uh ran for, ran on solaris there were several of them that were powered by solaris and they were just the printers. so it's in different locations for sure you don't he- yeah. <clears throat> you don't hear a lot of people talking about because there's not a lot of big enterprise solutions sold around them anymore
1: well yeah, it's, yeah, mostly it's older stuff. Like when I worked at the power plant in high school, uh, yeah. they had a Windows network for all the business stuff, you know, spreadsheets and emails. Yeah, sure. But the actual automatic the automated operation of the power plant was yeah. all Solaris. Yeah. It ran some software called Foxboro or something, I forget the name now, hmm, but okay. uh, it ran on Solaris because I remember having to copy a bunch of files to floppy disk on Solaris, and I'd never used Solaris before. <laughs> I, like I had used BSD and Linux some. So I was comfortable, and I you know, tons of DOS or whatever. So I was comfortable on the command line, but the commands were just weird. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, like the way you and the, like the slash dev entry for the floppy disk is just different.
0: <laughs> he has a second part of uh, this question, Alan. He says, uh, can you do any uh, accident investigations on the own cloud mishap that happened recently? Maybe repeat the error with dummy files and get handled uh, something, some ideas. So <clears throat> yeah, we had, a, we, had a, uh, we had an own cloud data failure for uh, one of our oh. shows. And Ooh. maybe maybe we will. Maybe I'll try like maybe we'll try to repeat it, repeat it in, like as a as an ongoing series in Linux Unplugged or something because that would probably be good and then if we can figure out what caused it we could file a bug. So I kind of like that idea. Did, Did you have a team?
1: quick overview of what happened? <laughs> I'm unaware of what happened.
0: Well, um so you know we uh, we have a producer for Unfilter and he collects clips okay. and I collect clips and then we have notes and we have art assets and uh, we all store that in a shared own cloud folder that syncs between us between an own cloud droplet. On DigitalOcean and the client on my machines. Uh, my my machine here in the studio, my workstation, and his, and another laptop of mine. And uh, so I, what happens is he goes through and he collects stuff. I collect stuff. and then the last day before the show, I go through and I organize, I sort, I, I order the clips the way they're going to go. I put them in folders and categories, or I move them. Sometimes he has some categories too. I add annotations and notes to them. Sometimes I even add like i d three tagging information if I just need it for like quick reference for myself. Um, and then, after it's all organized, it's in a working folder, and then we move it outside that working folder into the root of that episode folder. And that, that's just a file system move, you know, you just drag up and move all, or you know, move one directory up or whatever. And that move operation, the first thing that happened was, it, it's, it, from my experience, it felt like this. It, it synced the command to move the folders, all of the folders across all of the machines moved. And then it synced like the, the, like the cut command or whatever you want to call it, but it never synced the paste command because I believe what happened is when it went to move those files, the undelete function kicked in so you could restore them back to their original location. And because it was a particularly large episode, almost like 10 gigs in size, it was about nine something, um, that undelete function filled up the remainder of the storage. And I think then when the remainder of the storage got filled, all sync operations ceased And so it never finished syncing the move command. It just synced like a delete operation. And across all of the machines, two weeks worth of work, because this is an episode we spent two weeks on, two weeks worth of work were lost literally five minutes before I was starting the show. Ooh. Yeah. And so he had a backup, of course, uh, that we were able to drop in Dropbox. We couldn't get own cloud working because of the storage issue. But the issue was is that, you know, we, we work right up until the show starts organizing things based on how the news flow is going. And so the last hour and a half was some of the most critical organization work done because it was a restructuring of the flow of the show, and which happened at the last moment, which happens to based on news stories. And we lost all of that. And so I lost yep. 70% of our source material. I had to go on air with seven, like only 70% of stuff was really recoverable. And that was because we had Dropbox we could switch back to. Um,
1: and you still had to wait for it to sink, and...
0: Yeah, 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 so I, I had so, to... So, uh, yeah,
1: yeah your, your key problem seems to be that your uh, your droplet doesn't have enough storage.
0: Maybe. <laughs> I don't, but see, what I don't, what I'm not quite clear on is, does a move operation but, act as a, does it, does it, does it trigger the undoing storage? It should just be a
1: rename instead of yeah. any of what it was doing, yeah.
0: And so, uh, that, but see, the moving the clips around a lot, it, from my anecdotal observation, it does appear to to, like... Resync the entire file when you move it. Like it, it re-uploads and re-downloads the entire file when you move it. And when you're dealing with 40, 80, 90, 200 megabyte, 300 megabyte video clips, that's not right, very optimal to begin own with.
1: Cloud doesn't know that it was a rename. It just knows that file is gone and this other file here is right. And we're, and
0: we're renaming and moving files. Yeah. Constantly. Where with Dropbox, it seems to be based on some sort of file hash or something. And if I move a file or rename a file, it just synchronizes that file operation and doesn't actually have to resynchronize the entire file. Right. And so, but I, so I'm not quite clear because at the time that the own cloud server, when it ran out of space, we had double the space necessary for production. But I'm thinking maybe the undelete stuff just, we had, you know, 10 gigs and then 10 gigs. Yep. And then all of a sudden you've used up 20 gigs and now you're out of space. But if, even if that's the case, like OwnCloud needs to be able to handle that, handle like a move operation, regardless of storage on the or, server. You
1: know, safely recover from an out of space error.
0: Yeah. So, <clears throat> I don't quite know what happened there, and part of the problem was, is because it literally happened five minutes before the show started, why it was happening was sort didn't of like... Didn't actually matter. Didn't matter at all. Like, what the hell can I do right now because everybody's here, we're on the air. I was already on the air when it happened right? I already started the pre-show. Like, what was I going to do? So, yep. it was awful. And, I, and so... I had
1: something kind of similar happen this week, too. It was a rough week. Uh, so, on Tuesday, uh, on the, based on an appointment we had, I recorded a uh, almost hour-long webinar with Michael Lucas about ZFS mm-hmm. and our new book and iX Systems. and It was really a great overview of why you want to use ZFS and some of the common things that you might have problems with and why your hardware matters so much and so on. And then, so when I was done, I followed my usual workflow. I copied the file, or well, I moved the file from the recording machine to the file server. Right? Copy, paste. Or mm-hmm. cut, paste. <laughs> like I always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I was like, okay, so I'm going to go to the web directory and create a sim link to that so then I can give a URL uh, to the people. I actually can download this, edit it, and post it on their thing. Uh, and then I was like, "Oh right, I recorded this from uh, Wirecast, so it's a .mov hmm. with uncompressed audio. Yeah. That's not what they're going to want. They yeah. want an MP4 with our." So uh, I'm like, "Okay, get rid of that sim link, ffmpeg, and here's yeah. the magic, and spit yeah. out a file." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ffmpeg says file not found. I'm like, "Blur?"
0: You didn't delete the sim link, did you? No,
1: oh, I deleted the no. original, and it was gone. And I was like, ah, I was like, "I'll undelete it from my NTFS drive." I tried NTFS undelete, test disk, uh, PhotoRec, a different program also called NTFS undelete, everything. And it's like I could It's like a bunch of these programs claim they can recover files from March, but none of them will even acknowledge <laughs> that they ever existed files from the last week. <laughs> oh jeez. And using PhotoRec to try to find the uh, MOV files when scanning the uh, an image of the entire drive, because I actually went through actually making a, a full image of all 240 gigs of my SSD uh, to do all the forensics on, because I had to not stop using my computer. Um, it can't even find the files that actually still exist or are fully intact. <laughs> and it's just like, no. yeah. And so after days of working at it, like I went so far as to like, do a hex dump of the entire hard drive image, which is like 800 gigs, but I compressed it on ZFS, so it wasn't so bad. And then grep it for the, the, the FSTYP stuff that is in the header of every MOV file. Find all those offsets, use DD to extract the two gigs starting on each of those offsets, Amazing. and then try to use FFM, by, all of this stuff, no luck. I was like, God damn it. Yeah. And, and then while talking about it with uh, people from IX uh, earlier today... I realized something. Do you know what I realized, Chris? What? Server side recording
0: is on. Oh, I was going to say. I saved
1: myself the way I've saved your ass so many times. So many
0: times, yeah. <laughs>
1: Wow. It's funny because that wasn't on for BSD now, but I turned it on at BSD Can because we used it to stream the keynote and I wanted a recording of it just in case. Yeah. Which turned out that the people from BSD Can asked for that later, so <laughs>
0: it it's, might have saved them too. It is so handy to have a backup because, you know, you, you can know, have... It's not as high quality. It's like right. 800 kilobits instead of 5 megabits. But it's there. It's
1: perfectly good. It exists. Eight hundred kilobits <laughs> is not so bad, really. No, for, it, for it's about what the resolution was going to come out to when they edited it down yeah. in the end, anyway. So it's actually not going to be a net loss so much. Yeah, no. But uh, as someone suggested, the title "Don't Move, Copy." That wasn't the problem. It was more that I deleted the wrong file.
0: <laughs> yes, I think I am and recording mostly, right now. I think I am yeah. recording. Good. Yes. Uh, the other problem
1: is so a don't rm the wrong file. The other thing is um, snapshots are great on ZFS, but they don't protect you if you create the file and then delete the file within the 15 minutes before yeah. the next snapshot.
0: Like I did. So like we had, we, I, I didn't create yeah. the file until yeah.
1: after the most recent snapshot, and then it was deleted yeah. before the next snapshot, yeah. so snapshots didn't help me.
0: Now, see, it's the one day where I would
1: have been better off with uh, HammerFS, <laughs> which doesn't, un- uh, doesn't free the blocks right away. It sits on them until it needs them to garbage collect, and that gives you these um, kind of like undo operations.
0: Huh. Ooh, Alan. Ooh, I feel your pain on that one. Losing nothing hurts. J.B. Hawk of Truth
1: wins the title automatically.
0: (laughs) I feel like I have been there. I've lost some more more episodes than I want to than I want to acknowledge. But uh, yeah. All right. So if you'd like to get your question answered on the uh, TechSnap program, go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link. And then choose TechSnap from the drop-down, or you can email us directly, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we'd still like to give you some links to follow up on, on your own after the show. And Some of these links came from our incredibly powerful and yet somewhat mysterious subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story is extremely relevant this week based on a mm-hmm. lot of things going on. Security experts oppose government access to encrypted communications, which we're going to talk more about in a moment, but yes. I'm loving this, Alan.
1: Yeah, so 14 renowned security experts have published a paper uh, so that's Whitfield Diffie, who did is half of the uh, Diffie-Hellman key exchange that makes SSH and SSL work. Uh, Ron Rivest, who is the R in RSA for you know the keys we use for everything, and Bruce Schneier, who you know invented a bunch of good crypto things and and random number generators and so on. Anyway, the four, 14 of the best security people in the world came together and wrote a paper uh, asking the U.S. and U.K. governments that you know, to realize that what they're asking for is impossible and dangerous.
0: And it got prominent publication in the New York Times, too.
1: Yes. Well, and yes, it's a... uh, But the paper is titled, Keys Under Doormats, (laughs) Mandating Uh. Insecurity by Requiring Government Access to All Data and Communications. And I have a link to the PDF here as well.
0: This is interesting. It's happening both in the UK government and here, and it's happening at the big pushes.
1: Yeah, so the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory issued this technical report... Uh, Which is quite a few pages and basically details all the way this is horrible.
0: Yeah, which most of our audience is probably instinctively aware of at this point, but yeah.
1: Yeah, well, specifically, they're like, what the government's asking for is for us to make some security system that has a backdoor that only the government can use. And they don't seem to realize that if there's a backdoor, anybody can use it. There's no way to make it so only the government can use it. No, no, hold on. One magic secret key that somehow only the government's going to have and the government's not going to get hacked and China's not going to get the key.
0: don't be ridiculous. James Comey, director of the FBI, says maybe it would work. They just haven't tried it yet. That's our next story in the roundup. He's been going around making the tour, making the argument for backdoor encryption. He says, everybody says it's a bad idea, but how do they know if they haven't tried? You know what, Alan, there's a lot of things in life that I know are a bad idea before I never have to try them. A lot of things, Alan. (laughs) We won't mention the one that you should have known was a bad idea. (laughs) That's for the live stream only, Alan. That is for the live stream only. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh,
1: But yeah, so basically his quote here is, I know all the experts insist backdooring encryption is a bad idea, but maybe it's because they haven't tried it. It's like, no, it's on principle, it's a bad idea. what you're asking for is a backdoor that only certain people can use and that's just not even possible and it defeats the entire point of encryption if if i want the government to read my encryption i'll include them on the list of keys i encrypt to uh,
0: and, and, and you can't mandate and it and the it's reality just, is horrible. the reality is we have actually tried and a lot of times that they've later come out as flaws and then we find <clears> them exactly. every-
1: they tried it with the clipper chip
0: yeah right this is when the clintons tried to push this
1: through when the FBI wanted this in the '90s, they had the thing, and it was, and they were ignoring these same experts saying it won't work. Yes. Until a teenager came up and said, like, "Oh, I can read everybody's things encrypted with this Clipper chip now." Like, oh, okay, I guess we give up on it. And now they're just gonna try it again and be like, "Oh, you didn't try." It's like you didn't try either.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Oh wow! This next headline from the roundup is nuts. The FBI spent seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars on hacking team spy tools since two thousand and eleven.
1: This is just the invoices they found so far in the, in that data breach.
0: Oh my gosh! No wonder That's these guys. That's actually not big that money. much. Yeah, but this from one I would have one division. It to be. Oh, here's their commercial. Oh, yes. Can I play just a Can I just play a moment of it for you? Because it's, it's so ridiculous, Alan. I I played. Is it
1: targeted at getting the FBI to buy stuff from them? It's
0: targeted like I don't know. I don't know. Today. States
1: sensitive data is transmitted over encrypted channels, and you
0: see the head slowly rising in Often the bottom of the, the frame?
1: information you want is not transmitted at all. Your target may be outside he your comes. monitoring domain.
0: Mm, monitoring domain, is Alan. passive monitoring enough? No, of course not.
1: This is definitely targeted you specifically need at the FBI more. and long term, yeah, your
0: yeah, or CTOs. Lies. And here he comes, here comes the hacker. You, you have see him? to hack your target. you got to hack your target back, Alan. Browsing the web, exchange documents, receiving SMS, crossing the borders. You have to hit many different platforms. Windows, OS X, iOS, Android, BlackBerry, Symbian, and Linux. You have BSD is safe. Symbian gets a mention, but BSD doesn't? How's that? What's well, how old a- is this video? I don't know. These guys are dorks, obviously.
1: Uh, but yes, this is definitely targeted specifically at, like, just the terms they were using. Even corporate IT is like, but you want us to? We're gonna go around and hack a bunch of random people in case they might try to hack us first. No, this is the FBI being like, we suspect this guy. Yes. We don't have enough proof for a warrant, so yes. we're just gonna infect his computer without a warrant. Yeah. And yeah. and we'll just use some Italian company's spyware to do it.
0: <sighs> okay, I love this one. This is a new tack. Uh, Ad fraud trojan is updating the Flash player, so that way other malware can't get in. Close the door behind yeah. you.
1: Yeah, this is definitely. Uh, you can see the business case for this from the five Trojan. Sure. If if your machine gets taken over by too much spam, it's going to slow it down and it won't be able to five so well. That's kind of brilliant. Uh, so yeah, it updates the Flash player so that the ads can't actually infect your machine.
0: <laughs> good guy Trojan, in a way.
1: Yeah, good guy uh, Trojan,
0: basically. I didn't I didn't follow this story because I'm just getting sick of all these quote unquote glitches. But uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, or was it? Yeah, so. United Airlines flights were all grounded uh, due to a... For about two hours, yeah. so it
1: was like uh, 80 canceled flights and 800 delayed flights or something like that. Yeah, due to automation uh, issues, they say. Well, apparently... At first, it was a, they blamed it on a router. Yeah. And
0: then everybody's like, well, why don't you have redundant routers? And they're like, well, maybe it wasn't a router. We don't actually know what happened. <laughs> and on the same day, the New York Stock Exchange was also having computer issues. So it was a, yeah, it was a pretty uh, big deal. Hopefully,
1: we'll have more details about that, and we'll be able to cover yeah. it next week. Yep, we'll hopefully dig
0: in. All right, so I love this one. Uh, why we changed our software from proprietary to open source. That's up my alley. What's this about, Alan?
1: Yeah, so basically, we we don't often get to hear of stories like this, and uh, let alone getting the inside on how why they made the decision. Uh, so this is an interview with a company that uh, open sourced their proprietary software. Uh-huh. Uh, so specifically, uh, they design e-commerce platforms for very large sites mm-hmm. like Amazon and Google and mm-hmm. so on, mm-hmm. and they found that you know their customers would rather have uh, an open source type solution that they can extend and build on, and, and at least have some guarantee that if the company they're paying to build it and support it for them goes away, that they'll still have all the code and so on.
0: Cool. I love that. All right, this next mm-hmm. story, uh, I take it and leave it. I just thought this was kind of interesting. Assuming Alan and I don't burn out, I think your TechSnap program has a good, bright future ahead of it. Uh, the media briefing did an a, a article about uh, the monopoly and economics, the monopoly, the economics of podcasting. And I don't really know. They talk mostly about NPR shows. But there is one bit of data that's kind of interesting in here is there's a company that went out and did a survey, Alan, that figured out uh, where people are primarily consuming content while they drive. And so uh, Americans share a time spent, uh, oh, I'm sorry, just audio in general. Uh, Check this out, Alan. 56% is on the AM, FM radio. 17% is their own music. Uh, 11.8% is internet radio, like Spotify or Pandora. uh, Sirius is at 6.4. TV music channels, 5.3. Podcasts at 2%. 2%. Now, the good news is, is since they've been measuring this, uh, which is since... um, 2010, it's up pretty significantly almost every single year, and radio is down. So, podcasts have a whole bunch of market that they think are going to eat up in this uh, chart right yep. here. And in
1: a, another chart, there, uh, surveyed U.S. population over the age of 12 and found that uh, since 2010, the percentage of people who've listened to at least one podcast in the last month has gone from 12 to 17% this year.
0: Yeah. NPR getting big into podcasting has helped quite a bit, and so there's been a lot of articles about this. But this one is the first time where I've seen a survey like that. And when I see that much is in radio, I think, geez, there's a huge market still for podcasts. So maybe we're just getting started, Alan. All right, next story in the roundup. Uh oh, what's this Bitcoin story about an in invalid blocks, Alan? Oh, no.
1: Yeah, so there was a software update to the Bitcoin miners. Uh and basically the way they roll out updates is once 95% of the nodes on the network have it, then that version is now the requirement or whatever. Mm. Uh, so they rolled out an update that would uh, not allow these invalid blocks. Uh, but it turned out that uh, once they hit... Uh, so they hit the 95% threshold and started implying this rule on like July 3rd or something like that. Okay. Um, but it turns out that... Um, a bunch of the uh, miners that are running a new enough version or whatever turn out to have a bug and are not enforcing
0: the rule <laughs> uh-huh.
1: uh, and so this has caused uh, the blockchain to fork a couple of times
0: Uh-oh. so
1: basically um, a miner has mined an invalid block and then people other invalid miners have built on top of that chain other other miners that accepted that invalid block because they aren't enforcing the rule yeah. uh, BIP66. Um, they built onto that block. And so it became the stronger, you know how the, the blockchain builds on top of itself. And the whole fear of that, you know, 50% of the pool, if one person controlled 50% of the pool, they could undo a transaction by causing new blocks to build on their chain where right. they controlled what happened. Right. Yeah. Um, so the because... Uh, so many of the miners are running this um, what do they call it like uh, the lightweight uh, wallet well, so yeah. it's it's less work
0: SPV uh, yeah. for the miner
1: yeah SPV um, the, the invalid blockchain became the stronger blockchain on uh, July 4th at 2.10am mm. until uh, 3.50am uh, holy a.m. crap so 6 blocks in a row went on the invalid chain and it became better uh, and uh, until the Actually, valid chain eventually got longer and it flipped back. So those six, every transaction that happened on the invalid side of those six blocks got undone. Wow. Now, that's why you know, you're supposed to wait for enough confirmations before you do something. Yeah. But- so as long as you waited enough, you wouldn't have, nothing bad Ooh. would have happened. But the people that mine those blocks lost them. And so that's, uh, a bunch of miners have lost over $50,000 in Bitcoins because of the uh, chain you know, reverting and, and choosing the other fork. Uh, and then, so they they've verified uh, on the July 4th one that there was no double spends that happened. Nobody spent the same Bitcoin on both sides of the chain. Okay. Uh, so there was no funny business that happened. But on July 5th at 21.50 until 23.40, uh, it forked again and they haven't been able to verify if there's been any double spend yet. Mm. Seems like <laughs> if you know these are going to happen, next time one happens, you kind of want to spend your Bitcoin on both sides of the chain. Yeah, try to work it. Uh, but basically, they uh, they have the mitigation steps here. Is saying if you're using a lightweight wallet, you need to wait for at least 30 confirmations uh, before you uh, authorize a transaction or whatever, or actually, you know, transfer the value or whatever you're doing with the bitcoins. Uh, if you're using Bitcoin Core older than uh, 0.10, you should probably upgrade. Uh, or anything older than 0.94 nine, or older have this problem, uh, but you want to upgrade to at least 0.10 anyway because there's a denial of service vulnerability unrelated to this problem if you're running 0.9 anything. Yeah. Jeez. <sighs> uh, but if you're a miner you want to uh, they have a wiki here with a list of the pools that are doing it properly okay. and make sure your miner is in one of those pools otherwise the bitcoins you mine could be invalid and you won't get paid.
0: Good to know. <laughs> That's really good to know. You know know, know what else is really good to know? The fact that Windows Server 2003 support is ending July 14th, 2015. Microsoft wants you to know so so much, they have a countdown, 5 days, 9 hours, 20 minutes, and 2 seconds as we record. So I'm
1: guessing that countdown's been there for at least a year, because otherwise that's very Microsoft-like.
0: And they they also have a video too, Al.
1: We hate to break it to you, but on July 14, 2015, Windows Server 2003 reaches its end of life, which means
0: all support is history, and you're going to need a plan, plain and simple. Why, you ask? Well, end of support means no patches. This
1: includes security updates, like the 37 critical ones applied in 2013 alone. Hmm. No safe haven. Physical and virtualized instances will be vulnerable to any and all new security threats and no compliance. Sounds like Companies a Christmas video. that continue to run Windows Server 2003 will start to fail standard compliance audits. The time to move is now. And since you'll inevitably have to
0: move, waiting is both expensive and risky. Now, it isn't all doom and gloom. There you go, Alan. Isn't that interesting that they're doing that? It definitely seems like the
1: video is from, like, 2014.
0: Yeah, the video (laughs) seems a little out of date, Uh, but, yeah. Well, no, it's...
1: it's, But, yeah, that's the point. They've been telling people this for years, and nobody listens.
0: Yeah, yeah. They got quite a good resource at it, so there you go. There's your uh, TechSnap audience. There's your heads up, if you didn't know by now. Oh, boy, I hope you do. Now, let's talk about these containers that went to war, Alan. What's this about? Yes.
1: Uh, So this is over at uh, datacenterdynamics.com. They're actually featuring Mm. uh, the way the U.S. military does data centers, which is building, uh, they buy them from a company called Canon with two Ns, so not the camera company, but a defense contractor in the U.K. that builds these container data centers.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And they can just
1: airdrop these onto the mountains or whatever in Afghanistan.
0: Data center in a box. uh,
1: Yeah. It gives them all the stuff they need because, you know, uh they have satellite uplinks but satellites are slow and limited bandwidth yeah. so shipping a container with all copies of a lot of the data yeah. around with you or having the computing process uh, power to process the signals condense them down and then ship only the the you know the end product back to the nsa or whatever uh makes it a lot easier for them. The other thing that i like ah. to
0: talk about here is, uh, you know, sometimes they're in significant, significant cooling challenge environments. And so they, because these yeah, are built like in... Like in the desert? Yeah, these are enclosed environments. They have regulated power. They're able to cool them. You know, they're able to... All of that. Uh, it's really nice. And man- manage the humidity, all of that. Really cool. Yep. And they also
1: talked about how uh, some of them didn't manage to come home from Afghanistan because they were too shot up and so on. And some of them, you know, they would either uh, burn them or bury them so the Taliban couldn't get them.
0: Hmm. They abandoned data centers in a box out there somewhere in the desert.
1: Well, they you, they would basically blow them up if they couldn't take it. Yeah, them.
0: I know. But I'm just thinking it could also make a plot to an awesome Hollywood hacker flick. Like, if it didn't get like... Well, they, f- we buried
1: one and they dug it up. Yeah, and, and it wasn't burned it they- up. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, if people can take an old McDonald's and talk to a probe out in space, I think that could happen. It's, uh, it's a real yeah. thing. Hey, Alan, uh, that brings us to the end of the TextNet program, doesn't it? Speaking, yes, of, p- speaking of put in a box, the TechSnap program is officially in a box. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can go to techsnap.reddit.com, uh, submit a story, vote, comment, all of those are appreciated. You can also email us, go to Jupiter Broadcasting, and click the contact link, and then choose TechSnap from the drop-down or techsnap at or interact with us live in our chat room, jblive.tv, where we start this at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is...
1: 4 p.m eastern 2100 utc
0: boom jblive.tv for the video jblive.info for the audio we got available in high bitrate and low bitrate, which is handy if you're in the go or on the bus or uh, i don't know maybe you just like to save bits whatever that is if you like to help us save bits we do have torrent versions available of this show those feeds are linked in the show notes as well as links to everything else alan has talked about in episode 222 just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com click this episode of TechSnap Scroll right down below the description and the video and all that, and you'll find links and RSS feeds, and you get the show automatically. It's amazing. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.